Colossians chapter 1. Like I said, um, while you're turning there, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. In the New Testament, you have the first four books are called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's a book called Acts, which is the first book about the history of the church. And then you have your first letter is Romans, then First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. That's the one where you're supposed to be. The next one after that is First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. So if you've gone there, you've gone too far. So Colossians and chapter 1. I'm in Colossians this morning because I did a study this week on Thanksgiving. <clears throat> because it's Thanksgiving. And I was going to jump into Luke in the Sermon on the Plain. And then I was going to have to cut it off because we have a missionary speaker. And then I'm doing Ruth in December. And I, didn't, I wanted to keep the whole Sermon on the Plain together starting in, starting in January. So we'll get back into Luke and the Sermon on the You guys, Sermon on the Plain, what's that? That's the flat version of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It's Jesus preached multiple places, and one time he preached on a plane. And that's a, it's a sermon. It has a lot of similar sermons. We'll get to that in January as one unit. But with that said, I wanted to start in Colossians today. <clears throat> and I want you to look first at verse 3, and we're going to go from verse 3, and we're going to jump down to verse 9. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask this morning that as we consider, um, as we consider the grace that you've shown us in Christ, that we would also understand the gratitude that ought to spring from that. And as we are filled increasingly with gratitude for your grace, that we would be people who are gracious to others, recognizing that um, we deserve nothing but your wrath. And you've chosen in your son Jesus to give us nothing but your grace and goodness. So we're thankful for that. We pray that we would recognize that and we would be a deeply thankful people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving is a holiday that we often, or most often at least, associate with eating, isn't it? You think about what you're going to eat at Thanksgiving. If you're anything like me especially, you tend to go, what's coming up, right? And you know on Thursday, like when I come to lunch, I'm planning for dinner, right? What's coming for so Some of you aren't that way. That's just, that's the problem I have. So I, I'm, I, Thanksgiving's coming up, and I'm thinking about the traditional meal of a tur turkey, right, and stuffing, and or, and mashed potatoes and gravy and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm going to tell you, be honest with you, um, every year during that meal, there's one thing that I wish was different about this tradition. One thing I was, wish was different about the American tradition of Thanksgiving. You know what that is? I wish, I wish this tradition had been started by Mexicans. Because Mexican food is so much better. Isn't it? I think, Lord, if I could go back in time, the pilgrims would have run into the Mexicans. <laughs> That's what I would do differently. Anyway, so 
I bet you thought it was going to be more profound, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah, but the fact is, I don't care for traditional Thanksgiving food. So here's the thing. We all know that food isn't really the point of Thanksgiving, is it? It isn't really the point. We eat a meal together. We gather together and eat a meal together and thank God together for his provision to us as a nation. That's what we do. The practice of eating and thanksgiving to God for his provision is actually a deeply biblical practice. You see it all throughout Scripture. People get together to thank God and participate in a meal together, thanking him for his provision. That's what we do at communion. Communion is the Eucharist, the thanksgiving meal. Now, obviously, you're like, I just get a little chip and some, but you get the point, okay? It's a Thanksgiving meal. It's, it's the idea that we're gathering together and eating together in thanksgiving to God for his provision of grace in Christ. But at Thanksgiving, we gather as a nation to thank God for his grace to us and providing for us as a country. Because see, God created everything for us to enjoy. Everything he created for us to enjoy. He created everything for us to be thankful to him for. He didn't have to create us. You guys know that, right? He doesn't have to provide for us, but he does. And it's sheer grace that he does so. Sheer grace. How many of you guys know what the Latin word or the Latin root for the word um, gratitude is? You guys know? It's, it's the word gratis. Good. I heard somebody say it, gratis. Did you say that, Kristen? You're smart. No wonder Jason married you. But gratis, right? It's, a, it's the root for the, is the word gratitude. And you know what that word means? It means free or unmerited, undeserved. It's the word for grace in Latin. It's like you go to a restaurant. If you've, if you've ever gone to a restaurant, they give you something free and they say your meal is gratis, right? You go, oh, well, it's free. It's grace to you. And what do you usually say? You say something like, well, thank you. You, you, you didn't need to do that. Of course they didn't need to do that. It's called grace. And that's why you say thank you. Because when grace is shown to you, you show gratitude in response to it. The words grace and gratitude are connected. If you believe that you've been undeservedly graced with all manners of gifts, then you are grateful. And if you believe you deserve what you have, or if you believe you deserve better than what you have, then you are ungrateful. Ingratitude, ingratitude is the natural bent of the human heart, isn't it? It's another manifestation of pride. Um, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. You guys are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. God has given them everything. And Satan comes to them and says, but he didn't give you that fruit. He hasn't given you. Is it enough? Did he really give you enough? You could have more. Look at what he's holding back from you. And he taught Adam and Eve to be ungrateful, didn't he? And they ate the fruit from the tree. And they were ungrateful. And as they took and ate, they damned humanity to a heart bent toward ingratitude. And the attitude is so characteristic of us that the Apostle Paul can sum up the condition of the unbeliever with the phrase he uses in Romans 1 when he says this about unbelievers, those who deny God. He sums it up this way. Although they knew God, they neither honored him as God nor gave thanks. Nor gave thanks. See, it's easy to get all riled up about atheists, isn't it? Oh, they're denying God and they're blaspheming God and, and I'm all riled up about it and angry at them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered that every time your heart is ungrateful 
Every time you are not thankful, every time you are not thankful, you are participating in the same God-dishonoring and God-denying attitudes and behaviors that an atheist is. See, ingratitude is at heart a form of practical atheism. And you might say, well, but I believe in God. So you can't say I'm really practicing atheism. Look, but if your heart isn't continuously bent, or excuse me, let's say this, if your heart is continuously bent toward ingratitude, then you're betraying a fundamental failure to believe in God. And you might say, well, I believe he exists. Fine. But you're also saying that God is really not that good. His plans and purposes really aren't that gracious. He doesn't really have my best in mind. He should be doing better for me than this. So you may not be denying the concept there is a God, but you are practically denying the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. You're denying him. So let me take it a step further. If you're not a person who's filled with gratitude continuously, then you're not going to be a gracious person either. You're complaining and your objections that you deserve better will lead you to treat others with a lack of graciousness. See, when people don't treat you the way you think you deserve to be treated, what happens? You'll not respond graciously to them. You will desire to give them what they deserve, right? When people fail in areas where you believe you're strong, they fail in areas you think you're strong, you know what you'll say? You'll respond ungraciously to them and you'll think, You'll wonder, how can anyone be so stupid or clueless? Next time you think to yourself, how could that person be so stupid? Recognize right there ingratitude and a lack of graciousness in your heart because you don't believe in grace. When people are strong in areas you believe you're weak, see, there's people coming on this other way. They're strong in areas you believe that you're weak. You won't respond graciously to them either. Instead, what you'll do is you'll find something wrong with them, something that somehow disqualifies their strength or question their motives in some way. And why is this? Why why do we do that? It's because we're not living with an overwhelming sense of the fact that every good and perfect gift that we have comes from the Father above with the sense that apart from the sheer grace of God in Christ, we would be nothing. Thus, we're not grateful people. And because we're not grateful people, we're not gracious people. See, that's what happens to us, isn't it? So here's what I'm hoping to drive at today. Right? Here's what I'm hoping to drive at. If you really comprehend the goodness and the graciousness of God and how he has demonstrated that goodness and graciousness to you in creation, and has demonstrated that goodness and graciousness to you in Jesus, especially to an unworthy, wicked sinner like you, then you'll be filled with gratitude. And if you're filled with gratitude, then you'll be gracious to people. See, I could inundate you with scripture after scripture on thankfulness, but today what I want to do is focus on what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians about thankfulness or gratitude And the reason I picked Colossians is because I did a study through the whole Bible every time the word grace, gratitude, thanks, thankfulness, et cetera, et cetera, is used, right? 
So I read them all this week. It's a lot, by the way. Thank, it's a lot. I was like, dang, this is talked about a lot. I mean, way too much for the condition of my heart to be the way it is. And so as I read through it all, one of the things I found is that Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, tends to use that word thanksgiving or thankfulness uh, more in one concentrated place than it's really used anywhere else by one single author. And so I picked up on it. So why does Paul do that? Why does Paul use it, especially with regard to the church at Colossae so much? See, he's responding in this letter, in the, church, the letter of the church Colossae, Colossae, he's responding to false teachers. And he's responding to false teachers who were insisting on following a set of rules, uh, what, what some might refer to as asceticism. That's denial of good gifts. It's, it's essentially this. Um, if I give up good gifts that God gives, if I give them up, then I'm going to be holier. I'm going to have a better status with him. I'm going to be more acceptable to him. See, the way to really get in good with God, the way to really get his approval, the way to really gain status with him and get him to think well of me and accept me, the way to make all of that happen is by denying myself good things that God gives me. I deny them to myself, and then I show I'm holy. It's also known today as poverty theology. And it's popular in evangelical circles. Don't think it's not. I'm not saying it's wrong to deny yourself good things. Sometimes you deny yourself good things for the sake of the mission of God, and that's good. But if you're denying yourself good things for the sake of the mission of God because you think that gives you a better standing and more acceptance with God, you're wrong. It doesn't. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing in this book in other words, the Colossians had been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, but teachers were arising that were calling them to trust in their own works from here on out. Jesus was good to get you in the door of the house of Christianity, but now you need to prove yourself. Now you need to achieve a better standing with God. The gospel was a good start, but it isn't enough. And so look at how he addresses that briefly in Colossians 2 and verse 4. He starts to address this. I say this, in order that you, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, people are coming and trying to delude the Colossians with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He goes on in verse 6 and says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, and see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's the thing. People weren't coming along here when he's talking about philosophy. He's not talking about existentialism. or That's not the kind of philosophy he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of philosophy they come to you and say, listen, if you just give up what gratifies you and what pleases you, if you just give up God's good gifts, then you're going to be more holy then you're going to have a better standing with him. He's saying, don't listen to that philosophy. How do I know that? Go down to verse 16 of chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, disqualifying you, it's insisting on asceticism, and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you are still alive in the world, you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as, if, as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, they, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. For that, nothing. See, Paul knew that this kind of performance-driven spirituality, this idea that somehow I earn my approval with God through doing the right things, and avoiding the wrong things is plain old slavery to a standard I can never meet. It makes too little of Jesus and his cross, and it makes grace useless. And further, it steals joy and gratitude, doesn't it? How does it steal joy? Because we lose sight of the fact that Jesus has met the standard for us. And when we lose sight of the gospel, we're no longer a thankful people. And Paul's continual reminder of being thankful would be a great repeated antidote to this problem throughout the letter because thankfulness is the outcome of understanding grace. When your spiritual life, your fulfillment, is a gift that you're thankful for because you didn't earn it, you're understanding grace. So in chapter one, Paul begins with this prayer. So that's just all to set up the letter. You ready? In chapter one, Paul begins with his prayer, as was his practice. He always began letters with prayer, except for the letter to the church at Galatia, where he's extremely upset about some things. But in this one, he starts off with prayer. And in verse three, he says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Every time we pray for you, we thank God for you. And he goes on from verse five, excuse me, verse four through eight, to tell us of the things that God the Father has done for them. And then he tells us what he's praying that God will continue to do in them. You ready? Verse nine. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. And I'll go on and read through the rest of that in a minute. He starts off by praying when he's making a request on their behalf. What does he ask for? He asks that they would know God and his will better, Right? I want you to know God, and I want you to know his graciousness to you, and I want you to know his will better. Why? Why do I want you that? So that you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the grace that he's shown you. And here's what that looks like. And he gives three participles where he lays, and you guys, those are, that's probably not a helpful comment, is it? He gives three different statements as to what it means, Right? To live that out, what it means when you're going to be walking worthy, as he's asking. And the first one he says is in verse 10, after he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, the first one, he says, fully pleasing to him, the first one is bearing fruit in every good work. That's what he, one of the things he wants to see happen. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. And then he says, may you be strengthened, that's the second one, with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience there should be a full stop there, I think there should be a comma there. 
And it shouldn't be the word with. The next one, I think the word should be joyfully giving thanks. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. So that the third one is that you're joyfully giving thanks. So he wants you to bear fruit, he wants you to be strengthened with power, and he wants you to be joyfully giving thanks. And, and what I want to focus on is this third outcome. In other words, Paul says if you know God and his will, if you understand the gospel, I want you to know him and his will so you understand the gospel, and there are three outcomes that are going to happen. You're going to bear fruit, you're going to be strengthened with power, and you're going to, you're going to joyfully give thanks if you really get it. I want to focus in on that third one, that third outcome of knowing God better, this joyfully giving thanks. He provides three reasons why we should joyfully give thanks for God's grace. If you look at verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. We're thanking the Father. And why would we be thanking the Father if we knew him better and his, who he is and what he's done for us and what his plan over all of history is? If we knew that better, why would we be giving thanks? And he goes on to tell us about him. Who, the Father, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now just stop there for a minute. The Father's qualified you to share in inheritance. Who were we? We were his enemies. We were sinners. We were people who turned against him. We were people who deny him. Some of you in this room right now deny him as I'm speaking. You're denying him. But for those of you who look to Jesus Christ in faith, the Father has qualified you to receive an inheritance. So you deserved wrath. You deserved lasting punishment, everlasting punishment. But instead, the Father came and qualified you to receive grace. If you could not text me during the sermon, that'd be great. The... Um, <coughs> qualify you to receive grace. The Father's done that, right? You were unqualified to receive that inheritance. Unqualified. How did you get qualified? Did you do something to earn it? No, the Father qualified you. It's all grace. He's qualified you to receive this. You hear the emphasis on what the Father has done? There's no emphasis here at all on what you've done. We're just giving thanks. Why? Why are we giving thanks? Because we're responding with gratitude to grace. The Father's done this. He's qualified you. Look at the second thing he's done. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Where were we as sinners? We were in darkness. We weren't in the light. We know the truth. We were denying God. We were opposed to him. We were in darkness. And he delivered us from that. Did we walk out of darkness? Did we go find our way out of darkness on our own? No, we were just groping around in the darkness and the Father came and delivered us from it. Came and delivered us. How? Through his son, Jesus. See, why did Jesus came? come? He came to seek and save the lost. Where were they lost? In darkness. And Jesus came to save us, sent by the Father. And he goes on, he says a third thing, not only to qualify us and deliver us, 
he says he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Hear that? You were qualified for an inheritance. You who were unqualified and sinful and opposed to God. That's us. We were qualified for an inheritance by the Father. Not only were we qualified, we were delivered from darkness by the Father. And not only were we delivered from darkness by the Father, we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son by the Father. He did that by sending Jesus. See, we are a people who turned our backs on God. We turned away from him, and we went in the opposite direction. And as a result, we were groping in the darkness, and we deserved nothing but wrath. All we were qualified for was God's righteous indignation. But the Father loved us, and he came pursuing us, and he sent his Son for us, and he came, Jesus, and saved us. He lived perfectly the life we failed to. He went to the cross and paid the penalty due to us. Paid it on the cross. And he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death. And it's through him It's in him, through being united to him through faith, which is a work the Father does in us by his Spirit. And we look to Jesus. It's through him that we've been qualified by the Father, we've been delivered by the Father, and we've been transferred by the Father into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That ought to cause you to be thankful. Because you didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to merit it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't add to it. All you can do is be thankful for it. And after Paul says this, he goes on and he makes this comment. After he says his beloved son, he has to burst in the second part, in whom, in the son, we have redemption. That means we've been freed from slavery to sin. Been freed from it. The forgiveness of sins. It's been taken from us. The power and the penalty of sin has been triumphed over by Jesus in the cross. And Paul picks up on this, in fact, if you look at chapter 2, and if you go down to verse 13 of chapter 2, he repeats this idea, and you, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, means you were unclean, you weren't the Lord's, weren't his people, God made alive together with him. You were dead. You're uncircumcised in your flesh. You are sinful Gentiles. Okay? That's who we were. Dead. God made us alive. God made us alive together with him. I want you to stop and think about that. When Jesus rose from the dead, when the resurrection happened, You were resurrected to new life with him in that moment. In that moment, historically, your spiritual resurrection occurred. Now, it isn't appropriated by you until you believe, but it happened then. You were raised together with him, made alive together with him. I don't have time to get into a full doctrine of the unity of Christ, but it's it's tremendous. And look what he says after he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them up to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, that's what Paul says when he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And what Paul does after he says that is he breaks into a hymn. Jason read it during the prayer. Did you guys hear that in verse 15 through 20? That's, a, that's an early Christian hymn. Paul's talking about how we ought to be thankful for what the Father has done through his Son, and he can't even mention the Son without breaking into song about him. Even when he's writing a letter, he breaks into song about him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Do you see the power of that? See what's happening with Paul? You see what he wants the Colossians to understand and know and respond to with thanksgiving? See, the idea of the Father seeking to radically and undeservedly save us by sheer grace alone through his Son pulses through Scripture. But that's not all that Paul says about thanksgiving in this letter. It's not all. He says more. Paul recognizes that understanding that grace will lead to a certain kind of life, a life of gratitude, which has very real effects in the graciousness of the Christian life. A life of gratitude has very real effects in the grace of the Christian life. So look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 15 through 17, he really sums up this idea that if we don't remember the grace of God in the gospel and aren't thankful, then we are not going to have the Christian community he describes here. You ready? Do you want to know how we have the kind of Christian community that Paul is calling us to here? It has to happen by first understanding the grace of God in the gospel, being grateful for it, and then that, that comes out in graciousness. Paul gives really three different things he, he sees with regard to gratitude in the body of Christ and in the Christian life here. And the first one is this. In Colossians 3.15, he talks about how gratitude helps protect the unity of the body. Hear that? Gratitude helps protect the unity of the body of Christ. You want to know how to unity in the church? It's protected by gratitude, by thanksgiving. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Would you see this? He repeats this idea three times. But here, when he says the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts, he's not talking about the subjective experience of feeling at peace, okay? Although that comes with it. What he's talking about, he's talking about the peace of Christ ruling your hearts into which you were called in one body. He's talking about the fact that Christ has bought us objectively peace with the Father. He's reconciled us with the Father, and he has reconciled us to one another in his body. And so we are one in Christ, you and me. We're one in Christ. That's the reality. People say, I'm praying for the unity of the church. You should, but you ought to pray for it, knowing it's already a reality that has to be lived out by the church. Because we're unified in one body in Christ, having been reconciled to God and one another through Jesus. 
And he's saying, let that peace, that reality, that truth rule in your hearts. That's like an umpire, that word rule. It makes the decisions. So when you're in conflict with people in the church, when there's a disagreement about a decision that ought to be made, what ought to rule in your heart? Maintaining the unity of the body. The peace that God has bought with us, between us and the Father and us and one another, ought to rule in your heart as you approach that issue. And he goes on, he says this, and be thankful. What does it have to do with anything? And be thankful. As someone who's done pastoral ministry for 11 years, I can tell you that nothing undermines unity like a lack of understanding grace. And a lack of understanding grace shows up most clearly in a lack of thankfulness and gratitude. Hear that? Instead of the church being a place where we're constantly rejoicing and thanking God for all he's doing, the church becomes a place where we meet together regularly to complain and point out the weaknesses in the church and in others. When your major thoughts are complaints about minor budget issues or a stupid leadership decision, which plenty have been made and will be made, incidentally, just so you know. Just set your expectations. Okay? Or carpet colors, which we can't control anyway. Or the drums being too loud. Or the chairs not being comfortable enough. Or the fact that you don't think Susie's wearing the most appropriate clothes. That's a make-believe person, incidentally. Or that you don't like that John's tattoo is showing on stage, another make-believe person, not the John who drums behind me. <laughs> then you've come to the place where you're missing the point. However important those issues may or may not be, none of them is the point. Your heart and mind is no longer set on and meditating on and thinking about and looking for and rejoicing in and giving thanks for the grace of God among us. Look, I'm not saying you should be thankful and smile and accept a false gospel when it comes along. That's not what I'm saying. But we're not talking about gospel issues in most people's complaints. If you want to be truthful about it, most of us, when we complain, that includes me, I complain about the church as well, we're not complaining about gospel issues generally, are we? I'm saying, this is what I'm saying, I'm saying that churches get ripped apart over pedantic, inane, ridiculous issues. And they do because we're an ungrateful people who have forgotten the grace of God to us. And the foundation for causing disunity, you want to know what it is? The foundation for causing disunity in the body is built upon ingratitude. Second, gratitude is at the core of congregational worship and care. Look at verse 16. To the core of congregational worship and care. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's interesting is this verse, verse 16, is, is a parallel to a verse in Ephesians chapter um, 5 where he says that, yeah, chapter 5 where he says that we that we ought to not be drunk with wine, 
but be filled with the Spirit. You guys familiar with that? And then he goes on and says singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That drunk with wine is actually talking about, it's better probably translated drunk by wine. Wine is the agent that does the causing, of, causing you to become drunk, right? It's the agent that does it. And then you're, then you're filled by the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent that does the filling. It's a parallel to this phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You want to know how you're being filled by the Spirit? The word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. And what happens when the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly because you're filled by the Spirit? You want to know what happens? You sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. You teach and admonish one another. That's what you do. When you aren't thankful for grace, you're not going to stand here and sing as a thankful person. Further, you won't instruct and encourage one another in the word in a gracious manner. This isn't talking here about, Paul's not giving instructions the way pastors teach you. In Colossians chapter one, he actually gives instructions about the way the leaders in the church, particularly himself as an apostle, is teaching and admonishing. But here he's talking about what? One another. Teaching and admonishing one another. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with one another. See, if, if, you won't instruct and encourage one another in the word in a gracious manner if you don't understand and aren't thankful for grace. Instead, you'll use the word as a hammer to beat each other down. And here's how it looks like. You overanalyze each other. You don't assume the best about each other, but the worst. We're critical of each other. We exhort each other in an atmosphere that is legalistic and oppressive and not encouraging. That's what happens when gratitude and grace are driving us. See, when we're this way, we see people's failures more than we see the grace of God at work in them. That's what happens. So here, let's make a covenant together. Can we do this? I'm just gonna covenant with you and you can accept it. You don't have to say anything, you just accept it in your heart. Here's the covenant, you ready? Between us and God, Next time any of us have criticisms of someone in this body, before we go and righteously confront them in their sin, or before we go and seek wisdom by asking others how to address it, which is also called gossip, okay? See if you can rattle off. Let's commit to rattling off as many things as we can that we are thankful for in that person as critiques that we have for that person. If we can't list, let's commit to this, if we can't list the things that we're thankful for and the way that we see God at work in them as quickly as we can list the criticisms we have, then let's commit to the fact that while our criticisms might be correct, our heart is wrong. and it's full of self-righteousness, and we need to remove the plank out of our eye before we go point out the speck in our brother's eyes. And that you're the last person, or if we're in that condition, we're the last person who should be critiquing anyone. You guys wanna covenant that with me? It's one of the things I'm most thankful for in Sovereign Grace. Because we're concerned about holiness, but we're not, Breeding self-righteousness is a dominant atmosphere. By the grace of God, we're not doing that. I'm not saying it never happens. Sometimes I'm self-righteous, sometimes you're self-righteous. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's not our dominant atmosphere by the grace of God. And I don't ever want it to be. 
And the only way it's never going to be is if our predominant atmosphere is one where we seek constantly to look to Jesus, being thankful for the grace of God. When that happens, self-righteousness has a knife put in the heart of it. See, we tell one another the truth and admonish one another in such a gracious manner generally here by the grace of God because we're grateful for God's grace to us. And I'm thankful for that. I hope that continues. I hope that every last remaining remnant of self-righteousness in any of us is put to death soon. Three, gratitude undergirds submission of the Lord in every area of life. Look at verse 17. Gratitude undergird submission, Lord, in every area of life. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, you won't submit to the Lord in everything if you aren't a thankful person, will you? You won't. You'll try to take life into your own hands to make happen what you want to happen because ultimately you aren't thankful for what he's doing or has done. 1 Thessalonians 5, he commands us to rejoice always, to give, man, I keep getting texted. Okay, sorry. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. Tells us to do that. How do you give thanks in all circumstances? The way it happens is because I'm grateful to submit to the Lord in every area of my life, even when I don't like what he's doing that? And I'm grateful because I know he's good. And so I'm looking for the good in every circumstance, and I'm believing he's working for my good even when I don't know how. Let me give you a practical example of how this principle of grace, gratitude, and graciousness works out. When a couple comes in for counseling, when they come in for counseling, the first question that we tend to drive at is this. How do you see God working? I mean, we hear their complaints first, but then we ask this question, okay? How do you see God working in the other person in a manner for which you're thankful? See, look, that guy, which you're right now unhappy with, he was a jerk who did dumb things when you married him. We all know it's true. I've done a lot of your premarital counseling. You were married to jerks from day one, okay? They didn't become jerks after you got married. Right? They were selfish jerks from day one. Right? Glorious people whom I love, but jerks nonetheless. Right? That's where they were. But you didn't see it because you were so focused on rehearsing all the things you loved about that jerk. Weren't you? All the things you were thankful for. And the stuff that they, you didn't like wasn't that glaring on the wedding day, was it? But over time, you get used to each other, and you start expecting things from each other, and gratitude no longer prevails, and problems that once looked small now look insurmountable, don't they? What changed? Did the circumstances change? Did personalities involve change? Not generally too much. Generally, what changes your heart? And that's how all of life works. When your lens is the grace of God, then you're thankful and gracious. When your lens is what you think you deserve, when your lens is your own pride and self-righteousness, then you're ungrateful and you're not gracious. 
And the problem is that we easily return to ingratitude like dogs return to their vomit, don't we? So how do we fight to be thankful people? We have to discipline ourselves in grace. Did you hear that? It's a discipline. Well, let me give you some examples of how you do this. Just quickly, count your blessings every day. Count your blessings. You've heard that said to you before, right? Count your blessings daily. Count them Start with the gospel and then think through evidences of grace daily. Take time to actually think, what are three to five things I'm really thankful for? I see God doing that I'm thankful for. Every time you have a criticism for someone, something, or even yourself, stop and think about something you're thankful for in the same regard. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Constantly remind yourself, you don't deserve any better than this. You don't deserve this even. Second, pray thankfully. Every time you pray, pray thankfully, recognizing you're helpless apart from him, that he's gonna be good to you. Third, tell others of God's grace in your life. Tell others of God's grace in their life. Take your wife on a date. Think through the evidences of grace that you see in your marriage. Send someone a note and encourage them and tell them the evidences of grace you see in their life. Tell someone what you see in their lives do that on Thanksgiving with your family, right? Take the time just to talk about the things you see God doing that you're thankful for. But take the time to do that regularly with people. Serve others. Gratitude. Gratitude springs from knowing you've been served and desires to graciously serve others. Serve others. And if somebody's your enemy and you know there's no way you can really serve, serve them by praying for them. Let me, let me tell you how I'm thankful for this church. I, I'm deeply thankful for this church. Jason and I talk about all the time we want to die here. Right? Not in this building right? But in this church, you carried my family through a difficult trial. This church did. You provided us meals. I don't know if all of you know this, for seven months. You sent us cards. You texted, texted me verses. You took our kids out to do things. You prayed for us. You treated us like we were family. You didn't have to do that. Most pastors in most churches in the same crisis get thrown out, not cared for, but you cared for us. And I'm deeply thankful for that. And I've asked some other people to share how they've seen God's grace at work in our church and among our people. I'm gonna have them do that, but I, I wanna start by reading one from um, Gwen Condit. She, she wrote me one, because she couldn't come, but she wrote one she wanted me to read. I'd like to speak briefly of making dinners for those needing meals at Sovereign Grace. Kristen, that's Jason, our past, one of our pastor's wife, would sign up, but I had more time, so I'd make the meals and she'd deliver them. So you've been outed, Kristen. But no, I'd, anyway, I'd pray for each of these families and their great needs as I cooked, and then I was hospitalized several times for days because of complications from a traumatic brain injury. The first meal which was de being delivered by Sovereign Grace was from strangers. At the time, I couldn't feed myself. I was lying in bed and said, Lord, thank you for providing food. Could I please have homemade meatloaf and mashed potatoes? Oh, and Lord, green beans from a can, just plain and a soft dinner roll. Right? So she's actually acting, asking for very specific things. Thank you, Lord. I feel so humbled to receive when I am so used to being the one to provide meals for others I'm at church. That meal from now people who are church friends, what did they bring? Meatloaf, mashed potatoes, green beans from a can, and a soft dinner roll. The Lord provides. My dad always said, and the Lord does provide. Many people provided meals and, were and we were blessed. If you love to cook, this ministry is such a blessing. Fast food is so hard for someone who's ill to eat. 
A simple meal prepared in God's love is a blessing. God is so good that when you sign up for maybe a stranger to you that needs meals, you become a vessel to answer a prayer. Blessing to our church's meal ministry. And that's a ministry I can say has gone on for a couple years, blessing a lot of people, which we're thankful for. But I asked a couple other people to come and share, and I have a mic down here on the floor. Um, and so if, if, if a few of you could come up, or the three of you I asked at least could come up right now, it doesn't really matter which order. If you come sit, sit or stand down here, down here so you can come to the mic quickly. Shauna, we can stop, start with you. Come down here. I want them to share evidences of grace before we conclude that they've seen as a result of the ministry of this church. And um, just briefly, you guys can go ahead. Make sure my tattoos aren't showing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Good morning. My name is Shauna, and I'm an addict. I began using in 1999, and quickly things started spiraling downhill. Within six months, I had lost my job, my home, and finally I lost my children. I quickly became everything I swore I would never be. I was a liar, a cheat, a thief, and most of all, I was a drug dealer. I lived this lifestyle for a couple of fast-paced years before it came to a screeching halt, and I ended up in a jail cell, serving time on seven felonies. I got out, went to rehab, went to work, and moved in with my parents and got my kids back, determined that my life would be different, and different it was. I enrolled in college and majored in sociology, which was the best decision of my life. I met the most wonderful professor there who really helped change my life. Professor Jennifer Altenhoffel took me in not just as a student, but as a friend. I was given the opportunity to take a class with her where we traveled to Oakland and studied the inner city and that opportunity was not given to everyone. Well, Jennifer had to check out our criminal history and checked mine, and when she checked mine, she found my background. She could have made the decision right there to turn me away, but she didn't. She gave me a chance, and that was the first sign of God's grace that I had seen in a really long time. From that moment on, we became the best of friends. After that trip, she had been trying to get me to go to church with her, and I wouldn't do it. And finally, a few years later, on a Saturday night, I called her up and told her I would go the next day, and I really enjoyed going. I'd only been going a couple of weeks when I came down with a very serious brain virus, and the people of Sovereign Grace reached out to me and my family and started bringing meals to us. I've never been so blessed in such a way before and felt so loved and very welcomed from a church. I've met so many wonderful people here at Sovereign Grace and made so many friends that I know God's grace is real because even though I've been clean for nine years, I'm still an addict, and how else can an addict like me be accepted by the wonderful people here if it wasn't real? Thank you. Cindy, do you wanna share? Good morning, can you hear me? My name is Cindy. And the thing that I'm most grateful for um, at Sovereign Grace is the teaching. Um, when we first came here, I wouldn't have told you that I was a works-oriented person because I didn't know it, but I was. And what I think back to is um, an email that I sent to Chad early on um, because I wondered if Lent was coming up, and I wondered, should I be doing something for Lent? Should I be fasting or doing something really cool and holy because Lent was coming up? I didn't know about Lent, but I thought it might be a good thing. So uh, he, he sent back, uh, he returned the email, and it just said, um, sure, you can do that, 
but just know that it's not going to improve your standing before God. And I thought, well, now what? You know, and, <laughs> you know I thought, well, okay. That, that wasn't a big priority for me anyway, and I, I just kind of put it, I shelved it for a bit. But when Lent rolled around, I had no motivation for fasting or anything. And it, the ministry of this church, the teaching, has allowed me to evaluate that. It's like, why would that be? Why would I suddenly not be motivated to, to fast or, or to show some kind of gratitude before God? Well, the reason is because I wasn't grateful. And the slow, steady teaching in this church has allowed me to see that. Um, when I wasn't going to improve my standing before God, I was no longer motivated to do anything. But over time, I've seen that his grace is really safe. And my motivation for trying to work and, and earn my standing before God was actually shame. So I felt ashamed before God, and I didn't know it. I believed everything in the Bible, but it wasn't playing out right in my life. And thanks to these guys, they, they helped me see that over time. Just their steady, their consistent teaching, you know, if we all stick with it, we're really going to get it. It's just that we'll receive more and more from God. We'll receive what he really died to give us. And that is safety. It's safety before him. And that safety allows us to confess more. And as we confess more, we get more grace. And that is the grace we take to others in every relationship. Thank you. Thanks, Cindy. Good morning. My name is Manuel Mendoza. Um, my family and I have been attending now for a little over two years. And the thing that, um, that I see play out as an evidence of grace uh, among all of you is the sense of community that you have, the sense of, of family that there is. Uh, if you get involved in any one thing, just even casually, you'll notice a difference. Um, I've been a believer now since 1983, and I've gone to a number of churches and, and they've, they've been some good churches, but I've never seen or experienced a sense of family among church members that's not cliquish, that it crosses age boundaries, it crosses socioeconomic boundaries, it, it crosses ethnic boundaries, and there's a sense of support among the family of believers here that, uh, that I've never seen before, and it's amazing. It's amazing that I can go to a grace group and have a discussion with a young teen gal who's attending our group and, and, and be able to pray for her, share how, how her day went or my week went, and have this conversation. Or be able to share with somebody who has a little more life experience than me and have a conversation about things and be mentored by them. Um, it's whether you're, you're single married with kids older kids younger kids no kids it doesn't matter there's a there's community amongst uh, amongst this group that i've never never seen or experienced and that i don't ever want to uh, give up or see go away thank you david do you want to last person who's going to share is david blevins come on down david yeah david was teaching sunday school and had to run in here after so he left your kids in there alone to tear each other apart. Yeah, they're by no, themselves. No, there's other adults. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Well, I have uh, 
really bad seasonal allergies, so if my eyes tear up, please forgive me. <laughs> um, I, I would say the, the biggest evidence of grace I've seen in this church is our leadership. Um, without getting into details, I've, I've sinned against our pastors, Jason and Chad, badly. And my whole life, uh, I struggled with forgiveness and holding grudges. And I, I, I knew what the Bible said, but I didn't understand it. In the Bible, God's word is about forgiveness. It's about him sending Jesus into this world and dying for our sins. And I was a person, I was very self-righteous and still am, and, and I couldn't offer forgiveness back. And two people, three people actually taught me that, and that was Jason and Chad and John Stevens. Um, they taught me forgiveness, and they taught me grace. Um, and I thank them for that. And to be able to find that in leadership in a church where it's true and it's meaningful and you see it played out um, is special. The other evidence of grace I've seen in this church was yesterday. Um, we have a children's ministry director, Jamie Miller. She is doing a fantastic job um, with these kids. Um, I saw it firsthand yesterday. Um, we might not have the, the neatest children's programs or the best games, but they're getting taught the truth. And that's all I care about is that my kid learns the truth. And that's a huge evidence of grace in my life. So thanks for listening. Thanks, David. You, you can definitely learn forgiveness from Jason and I. If you hang out with us, you'll have plenty of chances to forgive. Hence, <laughs> that's a good way to learn it. Um, <laughs> we're going to take communion together as a body. And... Um, just thankfulness for what the Lord has done for us and as a people and, and reflecting on what Jesus has done. And so if you're if a you're, um, believer in Christ, hold on to the bread and the cup as it comes around as we take communion, which is focused on the union of the body in Christ. So we take that together. Hold on to it as it comes around. Sing with us as we sing. Um, we'll take that together afterwards. If you're not a believer, just let it pass. Let the cup pass. Come talk to me afterward about what it means to walk with Jesus with love to talk with you about that. If you guys could start passing that out right now even, that would be super helpful.